from your favorite podcasters and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 30, Godzilla 2000. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian scherschel and i'm nathan marchand and in this episode we will be covering the 1999 film godzilla 2000 that's not confusing at all <laughs> 1999 and 2000 <laughs> regardless this marks the beginning of the millennium series yes we've gotten the heisei series finished we got the TriStar reboot out of our system, and now we are going to start talking about the TriStar film's legacy, the Millennium series. This series has also been referred to as the Shinsei series, right? I believe so, yes. I'm glad to move on to the Millennial series, as you might imagine if you've been listening to our last few episodes here during the Heisei series. This series has its outliers and and its sort of more normal average ones. But we have some very interesting outliers, too. I think a lot of the movies in the Millennium series are actually pretty awesome. Our related topic is the Tokai Marin nuclear accident. But before we get to that, we will do our part one, which is a short description of our film. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a wrathful force of nature attacking Japan's power plants. He battles the UFO for dominance and later fights the Millennium Alien slash Orga out of revenge. Orga is a ruthless extraterrestrial who mutates after combining his DNA with Regenerator G1. At first, the apparently formless creature hides in his spacecraft. His goal is to establish a thousand-year empire on Earth. Professor Yuji Shinoda is a brilliant and idealistic scientist who formed the Godzilla Prediction Network, or GPN, to monitor and study Godzilla. Mitsuo Katagiri, the gruff and reckless head of Crisis Control Intelligence, or CCI, is determined to kill Godzilla to protect Japan. The whiny but competent photojournalist Yuki Ichinose is covering the efforts of the GPN for a Tokyo newspaper. Io Ichinose is Yuji's savvy and clever daughter who handles the business side of GPN and accompanies her father on his excursions. Professor Shiro Miyasaka, Shinoda's indecisive former colleague, assists CCI in their investigations into the UFO. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The characters' jobs are all connected to the monsters, even if only indirectly. They're always studying, evading, or fighting the kaiju. Both Godzilla and Orga are problems throughout the film. The JSDF attacks Godzilla at Tokai with tanks, fighter jets, and their new full metal missiles, which do inflict damage, but their assault is interrupted by the UFO. The battle ends with Godzilla retreating into the ocean and the UFO landing. CCI erects a perimeter around the alien ship, but the UFO later goes to Tokyo and lands atop City Tower. JSDF commandos plant blast bombs underneath it that are detonated by Katagiri, but the UFO survives. The problem is solved when Godzilla fights the UFO until the creature inside absorbs his DNA, transforming into Orga. Godzilla, unable to destroy the creature from without, allows Orga to try eating him so he can kill the beast from inside with a point-blank atomic blast. 
The script by Hiroshi Kashiwabara and Wataru Mimura, who each wrote a Heisei film, is a relatively simple story with a smaller cast and more focused plot compared to the other 1990s Godzilla movies. The film had a budget of 1 billion yen, roughly $8.3 million, with special effects supervised by Kenji Suzuki, who had worked as an assistant director on many of the Heisei movies. Godzilla was redesigned with larger dorsal plates and green skin. Stuntman Tsutomo Tom Kitagawa played Godzilla for the first time. Miniatures were used less in favor of chroma key composite shots that added the Godzilla suit to footage of real-life locations, although some look better than others. This also marked the most extensive use of CGI in a Toho Godzilla film yet, including the first fully CGI shot of Godzilla, which hasn't aged well. The movie has a light, almost Sekizawa-like tone, although the characters have some serious moments and there's gravity with the threats posed by the monsters. There is a fair amount of intentional humor, probably the most since Godzilla and Mothra the Battle for Earth. While it has many sci-fi elements and it's a bit more grounded than most of the Heisei series, this film is a fantasy. This isn't an experimental movie since it borrows elements from past G-films, such as a smaller Godzilla, genetics, and a commentary on energy. This movie reinforces the style of 1965's Invasion of Astro Monster by returning to the tried-and-true alien invasion story. After the failure of TriStar's reboot, demand was high for a new Japanese Godzilla film, so Toho accelerated its plans to revive the series only two months after the release of the 1998 movie. Producer Shogo Tomiyama has been quoted as saying that the target audience was 30-somethings. When released in Japan December 11, 1999, it sold 2 million tickets and grossed 1.65 billion yen, which was about $15 million, making it the highest-grossing domestic film of the holiday season. TriStar's dub version was released August 18, 2000 in 2,111 theaters, grossing $4.4 million its opening weekend and making $10 million on a $1 million budget. It received mixed to positive reviews from critics and fans. TriStar trimmed eight minutes of footage from various scenes to help with pacing, the most notable deletion being Shinoda seeing the word millennium on the computer screens before escaping the building. New music by J. Peter Robinson was composed and added to the film, giving it more of a 1950s American sci-fi movie flavor. The sound design was enhanced and improved. For instance, Orga was given a deeper roar. The dub itself has a tongue-in-cheek tone as a nod to many Showa series dubs. The most prominent of the forces at play is the conflict between science and militarism as seen in Shinoda's clashes with Katagiri. Miyasaka finds himself caught between these views. The CCI is a branch of the Japanese government dedicated to disaster management. The GPN is a network of kaiju chasers trying to learn about Godzilla while also tracking his whereabouts for Japan's safety. The film's key theme is that unscrupulous scientific progress can create monsters, as stated by Miyasaka. This prompts Yuki to say that humans made Godzilla the monster he is, to which Shinoda adds, Godzilla is inside each one of us, implying humanity can be just as destructive. This is also expressed by Shinoda when he says he left university because their methods had become unethical. Elsewhere, Katagiri's unwillingness to listen leads to his downfall. Miyasaka feels his unfettered curiosity unleashed the UFO. Shinoda's bravery and scientific prowess lead to the discovery of key information on the aliens. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we do an opinion and discussion of the film in the in this episode. Honestly, I think I like this one more than I should. <laughs> but that's in large part because uh, I have some 
some nostalgia attached to it, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. But uh, what about you, Brian? I am about 50% better than what I was before with the rest of the Heisei movies. I feel like this is something I could suspend my disbelief. Overall, I like it more than I don't. I do think, however, it is pretty weird. It's it a, is a strange one. It's a weird movie. Yeah, something I was talking with you about before we were we started recording was that I feel like this movie is is a transitional film because it has some characteristics of the Heisei series while also introducing elements of what would become standard for the Millennium series. And it's it's much like Return of Godzilla in that way, where Return of Godzilla had elements of the Showa era in it, while also introducing some of the elements that would become the Heisei series. And then the second film in each series solidifies what each of those eras is. Yeah, this, that makes sense. The reason I have a lot of nostalgia attached to this movie, though, is for me, this was a film that marked a new chapter in my Godzilla fandom. This was the first Japanese Godzilla film I got to see in a movie theater, mostly because it was only the second one that had ever been released in my lifetime, and the other one was released when I was two. So that was really exciting. It was also the first time I can remember going to a movie's website to find out information about the film, and they actually had the trailer posted on the website, which for me was just a crazy was just crazy. You gotta remember this is before the days of YouTube when you could just go on YouTube and find trailers for anything. <laughs> I remember fighting with my my grandmother's 56k modem t- for at least an hour, if not longer, to get the entire trailer to buffer. <laughs> That was back when downloading a few megabytes was a big deal. Oh, yeah. So, but it, it was worth it. And the the trailer, I'm assuming you've seen the American trailer for this film. Yeah. It is incredibly entertaining. It's incredibly silly. My, my two favorite things about the trailer is you have Don LaFontaine. You, you ever heard of Don LaFontaine? Yeah, the famous trailer announcer guy Yeah, from... Back in the 90s, especially, he's narrating the whole thing. And my favorite line that he has in the trailers right at the end when he says, if you can't take the heat, run. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) And then they had this was so ridiculous. They put in Super Beast, the Rob Zombie song. Yeah. yeah. Which was really popular at the time. (laughs) It's just. Only the chorus in this movie makes any sort of sense in connection to Godzilla, but whatever, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> trailer's wonderful. And the other thing was, it was about this time that I started subscribing to G-Fan Magazine. And I actually have my my first ever copy of G-Fan here with me. And it, the issue had uh, an in-depth analysis and review of the film by J.D. Lees. So... A lot of my thoughts on the film have been influenced by that. And I'm pretty sure this might have been one of the earliest movies I checked up on on Rotten Tomatoes. I could be wrong on that. I know I started using Rotten Tomatoes a lot more when I was in college. But so there's a lot of firsts attached to this film for me. One of the things I really like about this movie is the humor. Because this is the first Godzilla movie that we've had in a while that was intentionally funny throughout not as like it was a straight-up comedy it's 
more the Sekizawa sort of humor, where it's there to provide a little bit of levity. I like that a lot better. It And the humor in it is not just dumb. It's actually just, it's totally tolerable all, th- all throughout. The the humor that from the reporter, who's one of my favorite characters in this, she's probably the best at it. Yeah, just with her constantly getting frustrated with Shinoda and his daughter. And her frustrated voice and her, her mannerisms. She, I was able to suspend my disbelief with this movie in general. And, but the humor helped. It made it seem more real. I think actually one of my favorite scenes with, uh, with the reporter is when she's talking to her editor and he says, oh, none of the pictures you took came out. Yeah, because the radi- radiation. Yeah, and so she's really frustrated. It's like, you can't have a story without pictures. And she's like, ah! Yeah. Reminded me of Lois Lane fighting with Perry White in the original Superman movie. Also, Takashi Shimura, when he was the editor of the newspaper yes. in God- in Mothra vs. Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's calling back to, to those kinds of scenes. The one that I love the most is when they had to evacuate the building and she wouldn't, and they had to practically drag her out of the room. And that, that was great. I think it helps the audience deal with the movie. And we, we, it, this wasn't cringy Godzilla 98 humor. No. That just destroyed your will to live. This is so much better. And it was very, like you said, it's a lot of Sekizawan sort of humor. And it's not overdone. And it's not silly and stupid. It's not, it totally works. Like it. Yeah. I think the, the only time the humor came in anywhere close and it's still pretty far away was the the scene when yuki is trying to find where shinoda and his daughter live and there are the two guys outside she's asking for directions and this one guy keeps getting hit in the head with a board right but it's it's also interesting when you uh, the opening scenes of this movie you have all these people being threatened by godzilla and then they magically don't get killed Mm mm-hmm that's I think it, that was intended to be pretty funny, you know, the lighthouse keeper where that electrical tower falls, but it thankfully lands in just such a position where he doesn't get crushed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that possibly calls back to the situation in Godzilla '98 with the fisherman. Yeah, probably. And uh, and also with the uh, Hank Azaria. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah with one. the foot. Uh-huh. I hadn't thought of that. I timestamped yeah. a lot of instances where I thought this movie was referencing Godzilla Night 8, but I didn't mark that one down, actually. Getting back to the humor, it's better to have multiple approaches of how to entertain the audience. If you stop yourself from allowing enough humor in, then you're just making the movie weaker. Speaking of the lighthouse, do you have any recollection to Beast from 20,000 Fathoms? Oh, instantly. Yeah, I did When I saw that. Because, one for one thing, the, the original short story was about a lighthouse, and... Well, I think one of the best scenes in the entire movie is the the part where the monster attacks the lighthouse. Yeah. I also thought vaguely that there was a Lucky Dragon number five reference with the boat towards the beginning of the film. I can see that. Yeah. It looked like one of the photos. Mm. Well, and it's very appropriate for the the first of a new Godzilla series to reference both Uh because those are two of the biggest influences on the original movie. Right. So it makes sense. Overall, I thought the soundtrack to this movie was good. Yeah, it's pretty decent. I think it fits with what's on the screen, which is probably the most important thing you should make sure that it does. It's not classic Ikufube again. 
I don't know if that was necessary for this one in particular. No, I, I think the soundtracks in the subsequent movies are better in the Millennium series. They are. But this is uh, still quite acceptable. Yeah, it was composed by Hattori, who also did Godzilla vs. Yeah, Space Godzilla, which is kind of weird because the Space Godzilla soundtrack is very distinct, very ethereal. Say what you want about the movie, but the soundtrack uh, stands out from the pack. This one doesn't stand out as much to me, but I, I do it's think... It's more it, just there. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, there are movies... It's still acceptable, yeah. Yeah, it, it's... The soundtrack does its job. Absolutely, yeah. I like how the technology level in this movie is a bit more of a throwback to the, the earlier films. There's no fantastical weapons in this. The closest we get are those new missiles. Mm-hmm. But even then, those still seem like something that could reasonably have existed at the time. But everything else is It's just, not a stretch, no. Yeah, but there's no lasers, no macers, no... None of that gadgetry. Mm-hmm. It's just whatever military tech existed at the time exists in this movie. So you just have tanks and airplanes and helicopters. and Yet the appearance of all of this tech is upgraded. I think it looks a lot better than the the way that the tech looked before. The, just all the military stuff, I think it, it looks more convincing. It looks less toy-like. Yeah, they were using more composite shots in this, and I think they were using a lot of footage of real military hardware and a lot of CGI, so they're not doing the Roman candle missiles anymore. It's because of that that the JSDF seems less neutered i guess it'd be the term <laughs> yeah they actually have some success in this movie mm-hmm. they're not completely ineffectual and they're also they, they look more modern and it looks more real makes me wonder how that battle would have progressed to had the ufo not interrupted everything yeah it makes you wonder mm-hmm. there's not the implication like in godzilla versus hetera that everything is a complete fail from the outset. And so this is a little bit of the military power increasing, perhaps. Yeah, I. this sounds like something you would hear in part three, but I, I think it's a reflection of the Japanese attitude toward the military as well. It was starting to change at this point in their history. One of the general things I have that I love about this movie is the acting. It's like 50% yes. better than what we've been seeing lately. It's easier to understand the characters. They seem more like characters rather than people who are just there. They also are uh, more relatable, I think, as well, overall. Because you have a dad and his daughter and the reporter who's... They're very better much, formed characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's very much out of her element. So she she is the audience. Yeah, she, she's, yeah, she represents the audience. Yeah, because right? she's the one who is hanging out with all the crazy people and she's trying to bring a bit of sense to everything. <laughs> <laughs> and she questions a lot of these crazy things that mm-hmm. the, everyone else just takes as normal when she's talking to the daughter and she says, oh, yeah, you have to pay dues to be part of our little club if you want to keep reporting on us for the newspaper. It's like, why do I have to do that? <laughs> the cinematography of this movie is also better. It's not filmed exactly the same way as the previous Japanese entries in the franchise that we've been doing lately. I think it's better. It seems like it's more sensibly crafted. They also seemed a little bit more 
ambitious, I think. I think part of the of the improvement in the cinematography might have also had to do with how they could shoot the special effects. I think they were the CGI allowed them to do things they hadn't really been able to do before. So they were able to film it more like an average movie. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they were also a little bit more ambitious with what they were, how they were presenting it. There seems to be, there's a lot less sets. It's filmed on location more, it seems, as well. We don't just have great acting from our human characters, though. We've got some pretty top-notch suit acting in this as well. We do. It's it's better. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time that we get to see Tom Kitagawa in the role of Godzilla. So next to Satsuma and Nakajima, he is the the man who most frequently played Godzilla, and he's going to play Godzilla in all but one of the Millennium movies. And this was his first time out. In particular, I love what he does with Godzilla toward the end. He actually, and the, the, the people who are operating the suit you know, deserve some credit for this as well. But you know, that scene later when Orga unhinges his mouth and it just becomes gigantic, there is this very noticeable, like Godzilla's taken aback by this. He's actually like, what the heck is that? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's subtle, but it's there. And then you can see him start to think, like, okay, what do I do about this now? And then he charges headlong because he's like, okay, I ha- uh, there, here's my last chance to destroy this thing. And then he goes for it. it it's, it's wonderful. And the, the suit actor for Orga does a great job too because when he first gets up after he mutates, he's looking at himself shocked at what he has become. And then he actually tries to back away from God. So it's like, no, 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 I don't want to fight. I don't even know what the heck I am. Right. <laughs> that sort of a thing. So yeah, just great acting all around. The Godzilla suit for this is really different, but I actually like it. I like this one a lot. In fact, I think I actually like this one more than the Heisei design. And I know the Heisei design is a very popular one. Really popular, yeah. Yeah, but I like that this Godzilla is smaller. So it's more like the Showa era. Because after a while, when they were making Godzilla gigantic in the Heisei films, you start to notice one of the drawbacks of that, which is that Godzilla can't move as much because they have to make the suit bulkier. Yeah. But in this one, since he's smaller, he can move around a lot more. The I like the fact that this is, Godzilla is now actually green. <laughs> for, for the first time yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> People always think he's green. He's not actually green. But in more this like one, he is green. Yeah. Yeah, this is green for sure. Mm-hmm. I know some people don't like the the giant dorsal plates, but I'm okay with them. It looks it looks fine. Mm-hmm. This design, it, it more or less becomes the staple of the Millennium series. There are some different suits that get used as, uh, through, in certain entries in the series, but this is generally the look that they went with. I like the crocodile teeth, too. His jaw doesn't come down completely clean. Yeah. So the teeth are all sticking out. That's nice, actually. It's way better than what we just saw in the last movie. <laughs> and this this movie is getting treated favorably here because one one reason is we just saw the worst entry in the whole series. I think Frogzilla from Son of Godzilla might actually get voted higher than <laughs> that a giant iguana. Yeah. There's obviously going to be a lot of comparison between this and the 98 film. I just will preface all of this with the fact that the studio that creates Godzilla, they did sign off on that 98 Godzilla design. They said yes, and they actually said that they liked it. 
which I find rather funny considering that later on we we end up making fun of it. Yeah, I I think they liked the creature design. I don't think they like the movie. <laughs> Is the I would hope not, but you saw that when there were complaints about the Godzilla 98 movie that Toho said, "Well, you people don't like any of these other movies we've made lately, so what's the what's the point <laughs> I thought well is that supposed to make it better that doesn't make me feel better but <laughs> I'm sure they were kind of frustrated I'd be frustrated at that point too I think but this would this is uh, this movie is a, is a step in the right direction though it, it, there are some obvious moments in this movie where th- this is saying that it's better than the previous one i know it cracks me up this is actually going to end up being something of a staple for the millennium series these jabs at the 98 movie they yes they do trickle out yeah one by one talk about a long-standing vendetta i mean all the way up to the last movie in this series they were just like they were taking shots but mm. it cracks me up because we've we mentioned it a little bit already but there are multiple moments Throughout this movie where they are, I don't want to say copying, but they're certainly referencing scenes from the 98 movie as if to say, we can do that better. Helicopters is my, is the number one thing that I saw. Yeah, there are a lot of CGI helicopters. In the 1998 film, we had CGI helicopters galore. And I think one of the, maybe one of the weakest moments of the helicopter footage in that movie is when they show that damaged ship. And there are not one, but two helicopters circling it at really fast speeds for no reason. And you'd think, and at that point I wished, oh, I wish those two would crash into each other. There's so many (laughs) moments in movies where helicopters, as soon as a helicopter appears, you know it's going to get blown up. So many times. But... Yeah, the, the helicopters when they the, at the uh, part in this movie they, they had like what sixteen of these helicopters just flying. I know one after this, the this other, giant after the squad, <laughs> this giant squadron of just yeah of these things. <laughs> the first one that uh, that I uh, that I time stamped was uh, about three minutes forty seconds in. We have a close up of Godzilla's eye, which you saw everywhere in the promotional materials for the ninety eight movie, and there are a couple of shots in the movie where that happens. Yes, nerve-wracking promotional materials, yeah. Yes. And then five minutes and 20 seconds in, we have a ground-level shot of Godzilla outside of a building as he walks by, and the ground shakes as he walks. Right. And again, we have another one of those kind of Sekozawa humor moments because the people in the diner survive uh, that crossing. Right. Probably one of the first really big ones is seven minutes and 45 seconds in, you have... Godzilla getting up close and personal with our heroes, and then he gets startled by a camera, by a camera flash, and then he roars at him. The difference is, is that this time they're in a vehicle, and uh, they he shatters the the windshield. Right. So not only are they referencing the movie, I think they're also trying to say, oh, we're gonna make this even cooler. Watch this. Yeah, it's an improvement on the previous one. That happens a lot. Yeah, and then about ten fifteen, you have a close up of Godzilla's foot as he walks through the street. Again, that was a huge part of the promotional materials for the 98 movie. About 3145, you have the scene where Godzilla is coming ashore at Tokai and the water is swelling as he gets closer, which I I don't think was original to the 98 movie, but again, huge part of the promotions of the film. So you, you were seeing that a lot. And then 4240... One of our characters, in this case Shinoda, is who is a scientist, is standing inside of a Godzilla footprint. 
Yes, that's really obvious. That was that's another big one with Matthew Broderick mm-hmm. saying, "What what am I supposed to be looking at thirty times? <laughs> yeah, what am I looking at? What? <sighs> and then it takes him thirty seconds to figure it out. Brilliant scientist, huh? Brilliant scientist. But he's an anti-hero. I mean, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Right. And then. As we mentioned in part one, about 59, 39 into the movie, a CGI Godzilla swimming underwater. Which that's the first time in any of the Japanese films that that's happened. Yeah. And I remember when I, the first time I saw this movie in a movie theater and and seeing that for the first time, I thought, wow, you want to be the other one, don't you? You want to be the American movie. Wow. (laughs) We have... Godzilla fighting Embera underwater, but we don't ever see him swimming. Like swimming. No. no, not like this. Different, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like they actually took a little bit of a cue from that movie. It's like, okay, we'll have Godzilla swim horizontal, and he'll kind of do a little, like a little butterfly swim to get through it, which is what the, the iguana was doing in the 98 film. Right, making the submarines crash into each other or shoot each other or whatever it was. I made yeah. it asleep at the time that happened. <laughs> Exploding submarines are boring? Yes. In that rare instance, everything's boring. When I first saw this movie, it wasn't in the theater. I know that, but it was on DVD. I have the original sitting around here somewhere. I liked it when I saw it. But when it showed us the UFO, when it starts poking through, when when part of it's uh, there after they destroy the rock that's around Mm -hmm. it there, and it's part of it's just showing out. And... It wasn't even, where have I seen this before? It was even more vague than that. It was actually more like, something reminds me, but I'll never know what. Maybe it was in a dream. Well, it turns out it wasn't a dream, because yesterday we were doing show prep for this episode, and it came to me, I don't know how, but I realized that this movie was taking a cue from Flight of the Navigator <laughs> from 1986. So we've gone back in time 13 years between this movie and the last one. Back in time. <laughs> and, that, and usually when these Heisei movies have done uh, you know, the aping and all this, mm-hmm. it's about movies that happened earlier, but not this early. This was actually, thir- I think 13 years might be the yeah. biggest, dif- biggest distance mm-hmm. time-wise, which... That was, while that was crafty, I still figured it out. (laughs) This movie that I had not seen since 1990, probably, right? (laughs) Never seen it since. I don't know how I even remember. I probably saw that movie like 10 times, though, and I I won't lie. I did did have a little bit of an addiction to it when I was a little kid. It might be the most 80s Disney movie ever made. (laughs) Quite possibly. Uh, (laughs) And I do have distinct memories watching that as a kid and just being utterly fascinated by the ship. And then I was like, "Are you are you for real?" And then I lo- I googled it and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> this ship does look like the yeah, one in this movie." Go on, go on the internet, find the images of the ship from Flight of the Navigator. It's uncanny, the the, the similarity. And I don't know how I thought of it, but it was. I'm glad I did because it was an it it got to be more nagging every time I saw this movie. I was like, what? I feel like something's been done before that looked like this with the mirror. The, the the shiny the chrome. silvery chrome yeah chrome yeah. I guess would be the <laughs> yeah I don't know how with I the and the funny shape uh huh yeah exactly and 
But yes, they are doing Flight of the Navigator for sure. And and yes, that movie is somehow connected to Godzilla because uh, Flight of the Navigator, it has not only Paul Rubens, but the, the connection to Godzilla is uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Who's married to Matthew Broderick. <laughs> yeah, she was a little bit young in this movie. Uh, the, the, but yes, she, she's married to Matthew Broderick, who's who starred in Godzilla 98. <laughs> and they weren't yes, even dating to or us. together at the time, I don't think. Yeah, leave it to us to make weird connections. <laughs> this movie also probably references Die Hard. Yeah, I can see that. Yes, with Nakatomi Plaza blowing up and then this building getting blown up with the UFO on top of it. Mm-hmm. That that there you go with that too. Flight of the Navigator is a more challenging thing to realize though. Cuz I don't know how many people have seen that movie lately. And there's no Yeah. This is one of the few movies that pe- that nobody's making a remake of yet. I kind of hope they that, don't. No, people listening don't do it. There are certain movies that you just can't remake. I think Flight of the Navigator is one of them. They've been trying to recreate the 80s a lot lately in the theaters and, and trying to get that nostalgia from movies from the 80s back over and over and over again. Uh, you can skip that one. You can skip this movie. This isn't an annoying level of aping, though. This is more referencing almost than it is truly aping, although mm-hmm. they do, we do see this UFO. It is prominent. Yes. In the movie. And it is one of the most memorable things in the movie is the UFO and how it moves, how it shoots stuff, how it flies around. And it goes from the top of one building and then it gets blown up, and then it goes to the top of another one. Yeah. It just, it's, uh, I've never seen a, a UFO that behaved like this ever in any movie that I've seen. I know. It's, it's very it's, different. Yeah, it is very different. Bordering on weird. And I really haven't described very many of these movies as weird, I don't think. Which now. is which is we're very astonishing. Our, yeah, we're on our 30th I mean, we, episode, but yeah. I think this movie's a little weird. But anyway. Yeah, you know another oh, uh, you know another movie I, I think the this uh they were referencing in this? I th- Independence Day. There's a couple of shots in here that remind me of Independence Day, like when the UFO f- flies over Tokyo and you have these crowds looking up and seeing and the, and the shadows being cast over them. I'll have to take your word for it because I didn't see it because well, yeah, Roland Emmerich yeah. made it. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I forgot. We, we <laughs> talked about that in the last episode. <laughs> but I, then, think maybe, I think I actually have seen that clip. Yeah, yeah. And then, well, yeah, because it was in the trailers and stuff. Yeah. And then when the UFO is destroying those buildings, reminds me a lot of yeah. when the aliens were blowing up uh, skyscrapers. And, and that's a very recent reference. Yeah. If it is referencing that, which it, I think it is. Yeah. And I feel like the the Millennium Alien himself looks somewhat like the the aliens in Independence Day once you get their scary exoskeleton off. And a tiny bit like the Godzilla from 1998. Oh, when he turns into Orga. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are some people who, some fans who have theorized that uh, an Orga was intentionally made to mimic the design of... Uh, of that particular Godzilla, especially when he tries to eat Godzilla at the end and he's sprouting spines. Mm-hmm. So again, <laughs> people are wondering, oh, are we taking some jabs at this movie? You're really ticked at that movie, aren't you, Toho? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, regardless, it's kind of ironic then that not only if they're referencing that movie with Orga, they're referencing another Emmerich movie. Yeah, they are. <laughs> It's kind of ironic. I wonder what Emmerich thought of this. Not that I care. <laughs> but I, I don't care either. No. 
<laughs> I'd probably go up to him and say, hey, they had one-tenth your budget. Actually, more like one-fifteenth your budget. They made a better movie. Sorry. They, yeah, they did. <laughs> you know another movie that gets referenced in this? Gamera Guardian of the Universe. Because there are a couple of shots that reminded me of that of that film, which just which had just come out in 1995. One is when they're working on the meteor after it has just surfaced and they're trying to drill into it and stuff. The beginning of Gamera Guardian of the Universe has an they find a new atoll, and it turns out it's actually Gamera, because and they're trying to drill into his shell. And then there's a shot of toward the the end of the movie, well, about halfway through the movie, where the UFO is on top of City Tower, and the sun's starting to go down, and that looks a lot like this amazing shot from from Guardian of the Universe of Gauss nesting on top of Tokyo Tower. So, I, I mean, if you're gonna reference another kaiju movie, that's a good one to reference. There's so many references in this movie. Maybe the most we've had in any. Yeah, quite possibly. One of the biggest highlights of this movie for me is the climactic kaiju battle. I absolutely love this thing. We get back to Showa-era style kaiju fighting. It's filmed rather well, too. Yeah, it's that the filming is nice. It's physical. It's not beam intensive. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, it's not Battle of the Beams. Yeah, yeah. We have some nice beam action in it. But that's not the only thing that's going on. Yeah. And we've already mentioned, you know, the suit acting is great in this. I love Orga's little uppercut where he just flings his big old club hand Mm. and just nails Godzilla on the chin. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) That that was great. It just seemed a more traditional monster fight that was more normal. Yes. And also very very exciting. But, you know, the, the fight choreography is great. I do not envy... The guy in that orga suit, because it looks like it was... Looks difficult. Yeah, it looked like it was difficult to use. And I like that Orga's big beam attack actually comes out of his shoulder, or what might be his shoulder, as opposed to coming out of his mouth. Just like the beam on the UFO comes out of... It's like on the side. Yeah. Facing forward still, but it's... Yeah, how convenient. Uh (laughs) Yeah, it's not centered. Yeah, the the fights Godzilla has with the UFO are actually pretty well done too, especially yeah. the second one mm-hmm. when it's whipping out all the tendrils. Yeah, and uh, it does some pretty smart tactics, like it uh, uses the tendrils to tangle up his feet and arms, and then puts one around his mouth. I'm like, smart move, aliens, smart move. But then Godzilla just mouth just builds up a blast in his mouth and cuts through. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see that again. Godzilla using his actual atomic breath. Instead yeah. of what in 98 when it, initially it was just like an air burp. <laughs> Magically would ignite on fire. And of course, Godzilla in this is much more of a normal Godzilla because he's no longer, like in 98, he's not an animal. Instead, he's mm-hmm. a kaiju. And, and it's, it's way better. Yeah. So and- much better. So much more acceptable. And with this, they seem to have, have a much better handle on, on what the fan base wanted. Mm-hmm. For sure. One of my favorite shots in the entire movie is when Godzilla blasts Orga with his atomic breath and there's this huge explosion, Mm -hmm. lots of fire. Both Godzilla and the audience are led to believe that he may have actually killed the thing. And then he comes walking around the fire and he's all charred and he's got pieces of skin hanging off. 
it sounds better in the in the dub version uh, with the deeper voice for Orga, but he's kind of moaning and he just comes walking around and he's slowly putting himself back together. Yes, slowly regenerating. regenerating. Yeah. And then Godzilla just looks at him and is like, what in the heck are you? <laughs> and then he just kind of fixes himself all up and he just starts walking toward Godzilla again. And then right after that is an, my next favorite part, which is when he just unhinges his jaw like he's a snake and then unfurls that giant whatever that organ godzilla runs at him and then orga tries to literally eat him <laughs> and there's some symbolism going on there too yeah because when he starts to sprout the spines we've talked before about orga kind of looks like godzilla 98 and it's at that point that he really starts to and even shinoda makes a comment about how he's trying to become a godzilla clone right <laughs> That's pretty clear. Yeah. And then what happens? Godzilla turns this around and destroys Orga from the inside with a point-blank atomic blast. Surprised Orga didn't see that coming. And I have to admit, when I first watched the movie as a 17-year-old kid, I was wondering, why is Godzilla doing this? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then... Uh, the spines start to glow, and I realize, oh. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> yeah. So I would probably rank this as uh, much like with Mecha God- with uh, the end of Mechagodzilla 74. This is one of my favorite Godzilla kills. <laughs> it is really memorable. It's a good one. Something I really appreciate in this movie is that it confirms something that... I think was always in Toho's head, or at least had been in Toho's head for a long time. And it's something that I think fans have assumed for, for years. And that is Regenerator G1, or in the original Japanese, it's Organizer G1, hence why Orga is named Orga, which essentially is that Godzilla has a healing factor that would make Wolverine from X-Men jealous. He can be bombarded with anything and his cells will regenerate and it's nice that they actually came out and put a name to it and confirmed this. In some ways, actually, it lends a little bit more legitimacy to to the series as a whole because they bring it up here and they never mention it again, really. It's just everyone just knows it. Now, they, they had toyed with the idea in some of the Heisei movies, but this is probably the most in-depth that, they, that they've gotten. I don't know if you need to give it a name, necessarily. I don't need a name necessarily. You don't need to get really specific. I would have been just fine with, he has regenerative characteristics because it's Godzilla. The whole thing's a mystery. So I don't know if you needed to go the extra mile of calling it Regenerator G1, but uh. I see what you mean. Although what's really interesting to me is there was a novel published by Random House in the mid nineties. It was the first of a series called Godzilla Returns. It was written by Mark Saracini. This concept was actually brought up in that book. It was actually done really cleverly, too, because they were showing footage, a close-up shot of Godzilla being hit with a missile. And then they slow it down a whole heck of a lot, like just like a few frames at a time. And you can actually, they're actually able to watch the missile impact, create a wound, and then the wound just seal right up. So Mm. when I saw this in this movie, my first thought was, oh, it's like that thing I read in that book. They're actually putting it in the movies now. (laughs) Next, let's move on to what we uh, maybe don't like. So my problem, I guess, with this movie is the Godzilla Prediction Network. We're thrown into that immediately 
when the movie starts. Yeah, it's almost like a scene from Twister. It reminds me of, yes, Storm Chasers, Twister. That's a pretty big phenomenon of weather tourists. In in this case, the more you think about it, the more questions you have. Do you think this movie paints the the GPN as a lunatic fringe? I'm not 100% sure, honestly, now that I think about it. I think to Yuki, they're they're crazy. She is sure. pretty weirded out by them. Yeah. But they're also, they're supposed to be our heroes. Which is part of the issue, yeah. Yeah, it's, one of the ironic things is that as as a Godzilla fan, you like the GPN because they're like a bunch of fans, a bunch of Godzilla aficionados who are always keeping tabs on him so that way they can let people know, oh, he's coming. Uh, this is going to get dangerous now. Or they're trying to learn about him and all of that. But if you lived in this universe, I don't know if you would necessarily like them. Well, that and they... They don't want to kill Godzilla. They don't want to stop Godzilla. They want to be able to predict Godzilla and get data. Yeah. They're collecting data. They're researching. But it, you're right. If you live in this universe, these people are a lunatic friend. Just because they're not only engaging in stuff that is probably way more dangerous than chasing any tornado that I've ever seen or heard of, but it's also the fact that he has his daughter with him. Yeah. Once your brain starts thinking about that, then it's like, uh, it's almost like you don't want to think about that anymore. Once you start thinking about it, it's, it's just awkward because she's not an adult. She seems to be like what? 10. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And so that's a, a bit strange because you'd think that somebody who would be part of a Godzilla prediction network, they'd be daredevils, but Nowhere on the Weather Channel have I seen storm chasers driving around in their huge vehicles with their 10-year-old daughters. Yeah. <laughs> um, you didn't see kids in Twister. <laughs> no, no, you did not. Um, thankfully, the reporter's at least there so that she can give them weird looks so that I can be placated by that. So that at least there's somebody who, who thinks this situation is a little strange. But I don't think they'd be very popular. Yeah, even really. the, even you, with you Shinoda's the, even with Shinoda's discovery, I mean that might have helped their reputation. Mm. And maybe their reputation is well. At the end of the movie, does this movie improve the GPN's reputation? I would say no. No. I uh, if I would say at best it's unchanged. Uh huh. But if you live in this universe, who's the hero then? That is a difficult thing to determine. Because like I said, as a, as a Godzilla fan, it's no, the no, GPN. No. If, yeah. If, yeah, if you lived in the in universe, this universe yeah. in this universe, you would probably be rooting for Katagiri. Yes. Because he's trying to protect the country. Or yes. at least he's being much more drastically active about protecting the country. Because he's the one who has the actual government position of accountability. Because he's a member of the government who is charged with what? Disaster prevention, which in the case of Godzilla is what? 
to prevent more Godzilla disasters, you neutralize Godzilla. So he would be the one with the popularity in this. But in this movie, those two things are flipped. Our heroes are the GPN, and our enemy is Katagiri. But is that just because we're Godzilla fans? Or would anybody else watching the movie also understand that? Because Katagiri is officially sanctioned evil. <laughs> the, the big giveaway is what? The moment when he knows that there are people inside the building, namely... Shinoda. Yes. And he's, he says what? In front of witnesses. Says, I don't care, blow it up anyway. And everybody's like, whoa. And that's our big giveaway that he's evil, right? Is he doesn't care. He's he's certainly an antagonist. I mm-hmm. would say that. But he has he has something of a story arc for himself in this. He's all about control. In fact, his organization is called what? Crisis Control Intelligence. Which he does a really bad job yeah. controlling and, anything because yeah. so many things mess up his plans. Yeah. All, all these things that he doesn't yeah. expect screw everything up. Yeah. yeah. And as the movie progresses, he loses more and more control over the situation and has to start then, depending on more on his subordinates. So he I, himself loses control. Yeah. yeah and I he's think, losing control of himself. Yeah. That moment when he says to blow up the tower, even though Shinoda is still in there, is an indication of that, that veneer finally cracking. Yeah, he's coming apart at the seams by the end of the movie, which is, I mean, in the end, we obviously see what happens is he's extremely exasperated with all of the failure that's happened, and he is raging against Godzilla, and what happens? He gets smashed. But I can see what you're saying. It does, it does present some, I guess you could say, problems? Because the more you think about it, the, the more difficult... It becomes to be a member of the GPN. Wouldn't you have to have a death wish almost? Almost. Yeah. Because the implication is that instead of just some tornado or something, this is radiation, which that's hardcore. Yeah. Just wanting to just being part of a group that wants to get rid of Godzilla, that in and of itself doesn't make them antagonists in the story because we have movies after this one. That it is their intent, and before this one, where it, it, like all these little networks and, and groups that are formed to try to neutralize Godzilla. So perhaps I'm just interested by the the dichotomy that's presented in this movie between the, those who want to neutralize Godzilla and those who want to keep studying him. And th- this was present in the original movie from 1954 with Yamane, mm-hmm. who said, don't fire on it don't kill it. We need to study it because why it scientifically somehow is able to get rid of radiation. It can resist radiation. Yeah. And that's very important. That's an incredible scientific finding. And so Yamane is very intrigued by this and wants to study. I don't see Dr. Yamane getting into a vehicle and chasing Godzilla. No, he did go study the aftermath. Yeah. And happened to get having Godzilla come up on him and they all ran, but Mm -hmm. he didn't stay there and flash pictures of him. So that's a little different than what we were presented with in the original film. In the original film, that, that whole consideration was, it's not the main part of the movie. 
No. But it's still it's something that's there, and it's one of the nuances that I think really elevates the original film, as we discussed. Yeah, because that's that's important. And then that translates into this movie. That part of it works because they discover the regenerator. Yeah, which they said would revolutionize medical science at the very least. Yes, because you'd be able to heal people's wounds foreseeably and, and that kind of those kind of medical advancements. Which is the movie's way of vindicating Shinoda and the GPN. And also him saying that he created the network so that while they're studying Godzilla, they're able to know where he is so they can let people know he's coming here. So they're trying to have it both ways. It's the I think the it's the movie's way of justifying what they're doing and because trying to I guess make them something. yeah try to make them look less lunatic fringe, right? Like this movie is pretty psychological about Godzilla. I mean, not only do we have at the very end there's a little bit of Godzilla in all of us, but this movie is rather psychological about Godzilla in a in an existential way. This was starting the Millennium series. And they thought that this was a good way not only to bounce off of Godzilla 98, but maybe they're also trying to get to us what is important about Godzilla, what makes him such an interesting kaiju. It's almost like this movie is trying to reintroduce Godzilla. Yeah, that might be a good way of putting it. And this wasn't for a young audience. No. He said it was for... 30-somethings. Yes. The, The producer. But this was meant for people who had seen Godzilla movies before. Probably grew up with them. Yes. In that way, it does work to bring up Godzilla with this dichotomy. Because they're arguing a lot, and they run into each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And seemingly, Katagiri gets more and more annoyed every time. Katagiri's very sure of himself at the beginning of this movie. And by the end, he's just been worn down into this shell of a man, practically... Because of his his failures, maybe not even because of him, he had some pretty good plans. But the thing is, got his plans got foiled because of this evolving crisis mm-hmm. with the UFO and, and all the stuff that came out of it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see a lot of stuff in future movies about evolving crises. Mm-hmm. This is rather important to discuss about as, as far as how this movie casts protagonists and antagonists the way it does. Because you would think that category would be more popular during the movie, except for the fact that he is kind of a jerk, one. But two, is that he is completely unscrupulous about his desire to eliminate Godzilla. And that, in and of itself, sets the audience against him. This discussion is far more substance than we than we got out of the 1998 movie. This actually leaves you with things to think about, where yeah. the 98 movie doesn't, because that dichotomy didn't exist in that movie. No, no one, the every character in that movie, their thought is, we have to kill this thing. There's no conflict. Everyone's no. on the same page. No, and when your movie has no conflict, <laughs> then it's pretty boring, as we've found out graphically. To cap off that conversation, is there a little bit of Godzilla in all of us? Depends on how you want to look at it, I suppose. Sure. I guess, sure. <laughs> it's, it's really just something said at the very, very end of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and when and when I heard the line originally, when I first saw this, I was like, sure, okay, right. 
Although the dub version puts it in a different context. Yeah, and speaking of that, let's get into the dub version. Yeah. Because it's, thankfully, we do not have the horrifically bad dubbing anymore. Oh, I've got a story about that one. We can go, we, we, this sounds more like a 60s. Yes. Like uh, Mothra versus Godzilla. Yes. Um, kind of dubbing. The funny thing is, is tri, uh, tri, Toho actually gave TriStar the, uh, their Hong Kong dub for the international release by Omni Productions, who did all of the, the Heisei movies. TriStar said it was unusable. Which is putting it politely, I think. <laughs> I think all the ones since Biolante were unusable, but anyway. Yeah, so pretty much they thought it was so awful, they just said, you know, we're just going to dub it ourselves. <laughs> Which is why the commentary on the, the Blu-ray and DVD of this is interesting, because it's the, the guys who dubbed it. So you, right, get, yeah. you get to hear a different side yeah, of a Godzilla movie production than you normally do. But yeah, their goal was to make it, more like the 60s movies. Um, it was more tongue-in-cheek, so they put in all these funny little references and these these little jokes and uh, some American idioms, like Yuki says, bite me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things like that. Since the dialogue is already markedly improved over the previous few movies that we've seen in the Heisei series, the dialogue is just better overall. And so the dubbing sounds better because they're not saying all these strange combinations of words sometimes. They also used Asian American actors to voice all the characters as well because they wanted to make it sound more authentic. And they did. That worked. Yeah. But there are, like I said, there are some kind of off-the-wall lines in this. Yeah. You have stuff like the guy who comes out of, they thought it was a deli, but he's dressed up like a chef. and He's like, oh, why is everybody telling me to go inside, where's the spaceship? And then he sees the ship overhead and he says, Gotten Himmel! Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because it's Yiddish for, oh my God. And they said it's because he looked like he was in a deli, so they just put it in there. A lot of people didn't get that joke, so they thought it sounded really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I think the subtitle line was Good Heavens. <laughs> and then you had the 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 dude, I think it's supposed to be the editor for uh, for the newspaper. He's trimming his nose hairs and then the ship flies overhead and he says great caesar's ghost which is a reference to perry white in the Mm -hmm. adventures of superman from the 50s so that was just a little reference joke that they wanted to put in there some of the other things that i thought were just huge i actually thought were improvements is they completely redid the sound mixing especially when you get to the end i think the sound mixing sounds so much better there's also added sound effects like when the legs i guess you could call it of the millennium alien come down and they touch the ground they actually put a a nice subtle little thud in the in the dub version so it adds a little bit more weight to the image and you can tell somebody actually worked on this and did this and and just like with these funnier lines thank goodness somebody decided to have a little fun yeah with, with it as opposed to just being deadpan serious yeah, the whole time, and then and then having the horrifyingly bad dubbing, which makes it funny. It's like somebody just being dead serious in a stupid way, and then everybody's laughing at them. Mm-hmm. It undermines itself. And with yeah. this, it's more normal. It's characteristic of what you would expect to see instead of just everything being so difficult. Mm-hmm. And like I've mentioned before, I like the additional music that was composed and added into this. 
yeah, for the for that. the dub for, for for the dub version, uh-huh. which does give it an old school American sci fi feel, but I think it's fitting. The the UFO sounds a little more interesting in the dub version. I, I still I, I love the music. I, I listen to the soundtrack. There are just certain music cues in the dub version that are just stuck in my head, like the scene when the UFO is hovering above the building and you have that, that really cool shot of got of a low angle shot of Godzilla standing up and you can see the UFO above it, hovering above his head mm-hmm. with the, uh, atop the building. Right. And the music that plays during that is just, it. well, I can't picture that scene without the music playing in my head. It's been a long time since we had an American version that had different music in it. Yeah, it has been a while. But uh, since we're on the subject of, uh, of the, this version and the, the kind of the funny lines, because we've had a we have a couple of podcasting friends who have been very kind to us in helping us promote the podcast and all that, so I wanted to give them a, uh, both a, uh, some shout outs here because they both have lines in this movie that they love. The first one I'll mention is, is uh, Ben Avery from Strangers and Aliens. He's had me on the show a couple of times as a guest host, and he he loves the the dub version uh, of the line from the end, which is maybe because Godzilla is inside all of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> he loves he loves making reference to that because he thinks it's it's kind of funny because he saw this movie when he was in college and him and his friends were always quoting it after they saw it. Mm. And then the other one is Dallas Mora, who's the the creator of Geek Devotions and the host of the podcast Com Talk. He absolutely loves that the this was original to the dub when they're talking about the missiles and they're showing video of how of what the missile how the missiles can go through walls and mm-hmm. he says this will go through Godzilla like crap through a goose mm-hmm. <laughs> and Dallas's wife says he just says that all the time he just finds every opportunity to say that <laughs> so so there you go guys thanks a lot for the for the oh, what you've done for us we really appreciate it any other stuff that we found funny in this movie I have one. It's a, I, I love how this UFO like essentially has its own Wi-Fi, and it can just hack any, <laughs> anything and everything. I want that Wi-Fi. I mean, it could just take over everything. Yeah, it's the ultimate hacking machine. This is just funny. I, I like to. I like that aspect of the the story too. Just mm-hmm. how it was stealing all the information. I love the scene when it's right after Chinoda has uh, discovered Regenerator G One, and him and Miyasaka kind of, you know, are just going crazy about it. Like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And Yuki's there with them, and she just she has this frustrated look on her face. Like, okay, <laughs> silly nerd boys, they're geeking out, so I'm leaving. I, she's just, I'm done. Yeah, I'm she's just had done. enough. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, I've had enough. Every guy knows that face. <laughs> Whenever a bunch of dudes are hanging out and they're talking about something that only the dudes are interested in, the women are just check out. <laughs> also. I love how for 99% of this movie, Katagiri is, is scowls all the time like a 90s comic book character. <laughs> he just has one expression. He has one face, yeah. <laughs> Until the end. Mm. <laughs> and then and then speaking of Katagiri, his his death scene I do think is handled pretty well, but uh myself and a few other people have kind of noted that it's a little unintentionally funny. Yeah. Because he screams Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, when I'm thinking of someone yelling Godzilla, I picture Katakiri. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Godzilla swats the building, and he disappears, falls down, whatever. Yeah. And then Shinoda comes running out and says, Katakiri! Yeah. And then Godzilla roars. I'm just like, yeah. okay, that's a little... I, I realize this is supposed to be a dramatic moment, but this is a little unintentionally funny. 
Yeah. Everybody's screaming at the mm. end. Did they laugh in, in the theater? I don't remember. I don't. Yeah. I don't think I laughed, but it was because mm. it was something I read about, and I thought, "Oh, really? Some people saw that as funny." Oh, that's surprising. I think maybe more nowadays people would find it funny. Yeah. That's one thing I wish I had been able to do is with all these movies is see what the audience laughed at or how they reacted to everything in the movies. Some of these movies, especially I would have, I, I want to get a group of people just to see what exactly the, their faces look like when, when some of the things happen in these movies, I'd say, especially the Heisei movies, but some of the show <laughs> movies like from the seventies, the show's movies. Oh I, yes. I'd, I'd like to see people's reactions to the seventies show it as well. And just some of the funnier entries in general, or more more uh, entertaining, Hedera, some of some of these others. You know, oh, the really wild ones. A, yeah, yeah, there's a list of usual suspects for the wilder Godzilla movies, and even if the movies are mixed reviews at the end, they were entertained. Yes. Hopefully laughing with more than laughing at, but laughing at is also interesting. Even the bad Japanese Godzilla movies have an uncanny way of entertaining the audience. They do. You can certainly make the argument that even when Godzilla is bad, he's always entertaining. Well, with that, uh, let's uh, end part two of the podcast and we will move on to our related topic. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we'll be discussing a topic that was brought up by the film or was going on at the time that the film was released. In this case, it will be the Tokaimura nuclear accidents. And the reason why this is relevant is because this is the nuclear power plant that Godzilla attacks in Godzilla 2000. Yeah, uh, the in the middle of the movie, the military operation takes place in Tokai, and you can actually see the power plants in the background. So let's describe this nuclear power plant at the beginning. It was first commissioned uh, in the early 60s. And there was Unit 1, which was 159 milliwatts of output. And that was commissioned in 1961 and was decommissioned in 1998. Unit 2 is 1,060 milliwatts. And that was originally commissioned in 1973. Uh, It was then shut down after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami it is the first nuclear plant in Japan ever, as well as the first nuclear plant to go over 1,000 milliwatts in output. At the time that the earthquake and tsunami happened in 2011, there were 54 operating nuclear reactors in Japan that provided one-third of Japan's power. The Tokai nuclear power plant is 75 miles northeast of Tokyo, It is in the Ibaraki Prefecture, which Ibaraki is mentioned a few times by name. It is in the town of Tokai, well, about two miles, uh, about east-southeast of Tokai. And it is on the, is bordering the Pacific Ocean Mm -hmm. on the east coast of the island of Honshu. Mm -hmm. Which, if you look up... Tokai on, especially the plant on Google Earth, you can actually see what looks like the exact same landscape from the movie. But if you go just up the Oe River, then there's that red bridge. But we don't know what it's called. But we did find the bridge, too. And it's, it is right there mm-hmm. by, the, uh, by the power plant. Also of significance, the Tokai nuclear power plant is the closest nuclear power plant to the Tokyo metro area. 
And so that's the significance of this, which is a lot. You know, first nuclear power plant ever, first to go over a thousand milliwatts, closest to the Tokyo metro area. So that's prime target for a Godzilla to attack. Mm-hmm. And they do mention in this that his motivation is he's trying to take out energy sources and in particular nuclear ones. He likes nuclear ones because right. just like the Heisei movies, he feeds off of it. Yes, it's it's implied that he goes after ener- any energy source too. So just power plants in general is what the movie is leading us to believe. However, there was something very, very bad that happened at that power plant. Two of them, actually. Yeah. Although um, the second one is the... Scarier one. The, the second one is the far worse of the two. There were two nuclear accidents at this port plant, one in 1997 and then one in 1999. The first one happened March 11th, 1997. Uh, it was a, an explosion at the Donin or Power Reactor and Nuclear Fuel Development Corporation or PNC plant. And then the second was a criticality accident at the JCO plant. And JCO is a Japanese nuclear fuel cycle company. And just so everyone knows, a criticality is a limited, uncontrolled nuclear chain reaction. The, for the 1997 accident, the, it, there was an explosion. It was small. And all it really did was it smashed 30 windows and allowed smoke to escape. And then workers repaired the windows with, with duct tape. I didn't know duct tape could repel radiation. Mm. <laughs> Wouldn't have been my first choice to fix these things. No. <laughs> Note the sarcasm. <laughs> 37 workers were exposed to elevated levels of radiation. And then one week later, high levels of cesium, which is an alkali metal, were detected 25 miles southwest of the plant. Otherwise, this was a relatively minor incident. As far as nuclear incidents go, for sure, yeah. Yeah. The second one is where is the one that's the the more relevant of the two. And it was far more serious. In fact, it was the worst civilian nuclear radiation accident in Japan until Fukushima in 2011. Two people died. The accident occurred when three workers were prepping uranium for a new experimental fast breeder reactor the first batch of fuel for that reactor in three years. The workers weren't properly qualified or trained for this job. A precipitation tank hit critical mass when its fill level reached 11 gallons. It contained 35 pounds of uranium. There was no explosion, but copious amounts of fission products were released inside the building. The intermittent criticality lasted for 20 hours. To get this right, they over, they were filling this container with water, mm-hmm. and they overfilled it. Yeah, they exceeded yeah. the tank's uranium By limit a lot. Yeah. yeah, they they exceeded like gushing in. Mm-hmm. They yeah. exceeded the tank's uranium limit of two point four kilograms by adding sixteen. Yes, that's extremely bad. Yeah, so, and then our main victim, he draped himself over the tank. Yes, whatever you do. If you look up stuff on this guy, be warned, it is, it is not safe for work. Yes, it's not. Oh, jeez. Yeah, we, we're not going to show you. We're, we're, we'll keep showing you the nice little landscape. Yeah. He was kept alive for 83 days against his will, despite absorbing radiation equivalent to the hypocenter of, Hiro- of the Hiroshima atomic bombing. It was 17,000 times the standard maximum and four to five times the lethal dose. 
pretty much how did you put it because we saw a picture of his of his chromosomes how did you put it the term that i kept running into regarding how nuclear radiation affects humans is the the term deleterious genetic damage yeah and there was another worker who ended up dying four months after this guy his injuries weren't as severe but still bad enough that he just didn't last and this isn't like what happens to people when a nuclear bomb hits them no this is just pure radiation yeah from yeah. the nuclear nuclear fission at extremely close range yeah this did have far re- uh, also did have far reaching effects 5 hours after the the accident occurred 161 people from 39 homes in a 350 meter radius were evacuated much like what happened with Three Mile Island. Yeah. They returned two days later with sandbags and other shielding to protect them from residual gamma radiation. And that's the killer with this. Uh-huh. What happened to the the one unfortunate victim is it pretty much liquefied his insides. It was it's horrific. Yeah, it, it breaks apart the the chromosomes. Yeah. Of the... Of the uh, yeah. Yeah. And then 12 hours after the accident, residents within a 10 kilom- within 10 kilometers were asked to stay indoors as a precaution, but this was lifted the next day. All in all, 667 people including workers, emergency responders and residents were exposed to excessive radiation. Yeah, and I, I guess 3 Mile Island was actually a more it was higher on the scale of nuclear accidents. Yeah, this was but, a level four out of seven. Yeah, and Three Mile Island was a five. Mm-hmm. But the effects were far, far worse in that all these people got exposed and the damage was worse in human terms, yeah. Well, let's go on to the public response to this. This accident uh, coincided with a data falsification scandal involving nuclear pellets provided by a British company and it severely damaged the image of the nuclear industry in Japan. Along with that, in 2001, just two years after the accident, there was a study conducted by the Citizens Nuclear Information Center, and it found that 35% of residents in 1,182 homes in Tokaimura complained of symptoms like headache, weakness, sleep disorders, or anxiety after the accident. And these were correlated to the distance from the plant. There were also a lot of protests as a result of this, anti-nuclear protests. So the anti-nuclear movement was galvanized as a result of this accident because of all the danger involved and, and just how graphic the casualties were. And so this was, it was a big deal. And not, not until 2011 would the anti-nuclear movement get another really huge bump in popularity. But this was something that the Japanese very much wanted. They wanted to change. And it's just that it wasn't until 2011 that they did. After 2011, there were 100,000 signatures signed in the region around the Tokai nuclear power plant that said, don't restart the plant. And at the time that this podcast is being released, the uh, power plant still has not been turned back on. This was a very timely subject to occur in this, to have this movie and have this accident so extremely close to each other. Yeah, the accident occurred September 30th of 1999, and the film was released December 11th, 1999. So it was very fresh in the audience's minds. There may have even still been headlines going on. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, especially with that poor guy who was 
they kept alive for 83 days. He died just a few weeks after this movie was released. Gosh. So he was still alive and in incredible agony against his will during this movie. Oh. So that's how symbolic and how important this issue is. And so that's obviously why we wanted to cover it for this film. But before we go, there's the matter of those economic figures. Hit us, Brian. So since we are still in the official, officially sanctioned lost decade, uh, the economy did not do very well in Japan in 1999. The GDP growth was negative 0.19%. And we are also in our period of deflation as well. And, and also the Bank of Japan announced its zero interest rate policy in 1999, which that was one attempt to try to loosen up as much credit as possible so that people would spend for one. Um, so, but uh, interest rates went down to zero, according to the, uh, you know, for the Bank of Japan. Well, I think we've got our coverage of the Millennium Series off to a great start. What are we looking at next, Brian? Oh, yes, this is so exciting. We have our first Tezuka film in the Godzilla series. It is, it is, it is Godzilla vs. Megaguirus. The long title for it is Godzilla x Megaguirus, the G-Extermination Strategy. <laughs> Can it, you tell he's excited about it this? It sounds like it's hearkening back to Godzilla vs. Gigan with the Earth Destruction Directive. And we know we, you title. love that one. Yeah. <laughs> so that concludes our episode. We'll see you next week. We'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kiyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff, for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!